Psalm 129 today. song of a sense. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back, they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous, he has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops which withers before its before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, this psalm uh, has an opening that's very similar to the opening of Psalm 124, not so much in the words that are used as in the construction of the first two verses, you'll notice that um, both of them begin with that line that is repeated then in the second verse in Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, repeated again in the second verse, and here in this psalm, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, and that too repeated in the second verse. And these lines then are divided in both of the Psalms by that exhortation to Israel. Let Israel say this. Let Israel say in Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And here, let Israel say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. And the Psalms are also similar in that there is a a present danger for the people of God in both of the Psalms. But the Psalms do not dwell uh, significantly on this danger, but instead express primarily the confidence that the people of God have in the Lord's protection and in his power to deliver them. So they are more celebratory Psalms than Psalms of complaint. There's also a, a significant difference, especially in the second half of the Psalms, In the last part of Psalm 124, we have that blessing of the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers, and so on. But in this Psalm 129, we have a prayer against the enemies who have been attacking God's people. We're going to consider the Psalm under the theme, Many Afflictions from My Youth. We're going to consider, first of all, those afflictions as they're described for us in verses 1, 2, and 3 of the psalm. In the second place, we're going to see how these afflictions did not prevail against Israel, as that's expressed especially in verse 4, but not only. And then we're going to look at the prayer in verses 5 to 8. Now, what we have here is, again, a psalmist addressing the nation of Israel, and exhorting Israel, and exhorting Israel, in fact, to take certain words and to make those words her own. Let Israel now say, many a time 
They have afflicted me from my youth. That me, therefore, in those uh, two lines of verses 1 and 2, is not an individual, but is Israel. And it is Israel that the psalmist is urging to make her confession using these words. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. In other words, what the psalmist is saying to Israel is reflect on your history, reflect on your past, and consider in the past how the nations around, how your enemies have dealt with you, and see from that history in your past that these enemies have afflicted you many times. Now the youth of Israel, I think, probably takes us all the way back to the time of Israel's uh, oppression in the land of Egypt. Perhaps even before that, to the time of the patriarchs, but certainly at least to the time of her oppression in Egypt. That was the time of her youth. And if you begin your consideration of Israel's history there, and take it through the Old Testament, really, you can see that there's No difficulty in understanding why the psalmist would urge the people of God to make this their confession. It was not only Egypt that oppressed and afflicted the people of God, first by a grinding slavery there in the land, and then by trying to kill her children. But it was, uh, there were enemies in the wilderness. The Amalekites attacked them while they were uh, traveling in the wilderness. Sihon and Og resisted their desire to pass through their land. The Moabites hired Balaam to curse them. Many a time they have afflicted me. In the period of the judges, over and over again, evil nations from around Israel came and attacked Israel and and tried to destroy Israel and retake the land for themselves. In the time of the kings, these attacks uh, continued until finally, of course, The Assyrians took the ten tribes into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took Judah into captivity. There's no problem in seeing that this kind of complaint, this kind of statement was true for Israel in her history. From Egypt on to the present, whatever the present moment is, and many commentators, by the way, think it might have been written at the time of the Babylonian captivity, though I don't think we can be sure about that. But whatever the time it was written, it would certainly be true for the people of God to say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Now, we've been reviewing just the uh, oppressions of the people of Israel in their history, But we have to, uh, as we look at those oppressions, understand also that many of those afflictions that came on the people of God in the Old Testament were due to their sins and to the judgment of God on them for their sins. And would it be possible then for Israel for example, in reviewing the history of the period of the judges, to make this complaint, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. 
Would it even be just for Israel to bring such a complaint to God and then, as the psalm does, uh, go on to pray to God for judgment on those enemies? Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. And I think the answer to that question uh, can be found in one passage, at least in the Old Testament, I'm sure in many others as well, but let's look for a moment at Isaiah chapter 10. What we see there in Isaiah chapter 10 is God talking through the prophet Isaiah about the uh, attacks of the king of Assyria on his people. And he talks about the fact that those attacks of Assyria were part of his judgment on Israel for their sins. Verse 5 is where it begins. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Assyria is the rod of his anger and the staff to pour his indignation upon his people. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him a charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That's one way God looks at this. God is judging his people for their sins, using Assyria. But then we see God taking a different perspective on this attack of Assyria in the following verses. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations, For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? And we'll skip down now to verse 12. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. So God first says, I'm using Assyria to punish my people. They are the instrument of my judgment. They are the rod in my hand. Then he looks at it from a different perspective and he says, but that's not what Assyria intended. That's not what Syria wanted to do. Assyria was not attacking my people in order to be the rod of my justice. Assyria was attacking my people in their pride and in their sin. And I will judge Assyria for what they have done. Verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it, as if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood? So when God finished using Assyria against his people, then he brought his judgment on Assyria. This is what he does over and over again in the history of the Old Testament. He used the nations around Israel to judge them at the time of the judges, and then he brought his judgment on the nations through the judges that he raised up to defend and fight for his people. And I think the people of God may, the faithful people of God anyway, may look at this in the same way, saying on the one hand, yes, God is judging us for our sins, and we must repent and we must return to the Lord our God. But then also saying, God, bring your judgment on these wicked nations which have attacked your people and sought to destroy them. Now, in verse 3 of the psalm, 
we have a very vivid metaphor to describe this um, affliction of the nations. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. And that metaphor may well be derived from Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18. Jeremiah 26, verse 18. Jeremiah says there, or Jeremiah is actually quoting there from the prophet Micah. And that prophecy is chapter 3, verse 12 in Micah. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. So Jeremiah takes words from the prophecy of Micah, and he quotes them in this prophecy, his own prophecy, and he talks about Zion being plowed like a field. But the metaphor is much more vivid and much more detailed here in Psalm 129, isn't it? They plowed on my back, Israel said. They they make their furrows long. And that's, uh, there are a a lot of uh, implications, I think, to that metaphor. That's the, the point of using a metaphor here, I think in order to communicate to us in a, in a very vivid and pictorial way the uh, difficulties this affliction caused for Israel. Certainly they're taught in that metaphor the long and relentless cruelty of Israel's enemies. They made their furrows long, Israel says. They have been plowing on my back for years and years and years from my youth up, even until the present. So there's that long and relentless cruelty of her enemies in that metaphor. There is, in addition to that, of course, the helplessness that Israel feels in that affliction of her enemies. She is, as it were, prostrate on the ground, and her enemies are plowing over her like Israel herself would have plowed the ground of her land. There is the idea of humiliation in that metaphor. Israel is prostrate in her humiliation before the enemies. And of course there is also the idea of the great pain and suffering that these enemies caused. They made their furrows long. In fact, there's a suggestion there, I think, that of the idea of a beating also with whips the kind of whips the Egyptians used on the Israelites, for example, when they were driving them to do the work Pharaoh commanded them to do. The furrows might well be compared to the welts raised by the whip. So there's all this contained in that metaphor, the long and relentless cruelty of the enemy, the helplessness of Israel, the humiliation of Israel, the pain of Israel, all of this is bound up in that very vivid metaphor in verse 3. And all of this, it can be as much the confession of the church today as it was the confession of Israel then. This ought to, we ought to hear this word many a time. They have afflicted me 
from my youth. Let Israel now say, let the new Israel, the Israel of the New Testament say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. It's not difficult to imagine that the uh, Church of God in China, for example, or in North Korea, or in Iraq, or in Afghanistan, or in one of many other countries would use exactly these words to express their dismay and pain at the suffering that they are undergoing. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. This is, in fact, of course, merely a description of the war that the seed of the serpent makes on the seed of the woman all throughout the history of God's church and of God's world. And you see that history uh, depicted in a different way, but also in a very vivid way in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, you see, first of all, the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the 12 stars on her head. And she's with child, and she's crying out in labor, and about to give birth. And then you see the dragon hovering over the woman ready to devour her child as soon as the child is born. And that's a depiction of the Old Testament history, as the seed of the serpent was always seeking to destroy the seed of the woman, to prevent the birth of the one seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the dragon is defeated in his purpose because God snatches the child up to heaven, and Michael and his angels throw the dragon out of heaven, and ban him forever with his angels from heaven. And then what do you find in verse 13? Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And that's the whole New Testament period. The dragon persecuting the woman who had given birth to the male child. This is the nature of the, old, of the history of the church. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Yet they have not prevailed against me. That's the other half of this confession here that is urged upon the people of God. Confess, the psalmist says, You have been afflicted many times from your youth. But don't forget also to confess that they have not prevailed against you. Doesn't mean the church has never sinned. It doesn't mean the church has never been apostate. It doesn't mean that there have been no saints who have died at the hands of wicked men. There have been many doesn't mean that the saints have been free from suffering during all their years. It doesn't mean even that sometimes God has not withdrawn from his church for a time to express his displeasure with her. But what it means is that always, always throughout that whole history, final victory has been denied to the serpent to the wicked. They plowed on my back, they made their furrows long, they afflicted me many times, the church says. 
but they have never prevailed. Grace preserves. Grace has preserved the church through all the years of her history. The canons express it in an individual way in the fifth head of doctrine, of course, but I think the first three articles of that head of doctrine are uh, significant in this connection. I'd like to read those three articles a moment. It's on page 103 in the Three Forms of Unity. Those whom God, according to his purpose, calls to the communion of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, he also delivers from the dominion and slavery of sin. Though in this life he does not deliver them altogether from the body of sin and from the infirmities of the flesh. Hence spring forth the daily sins of infirmity and blemishes cleave even to the best works of the saints. These are to them a perpetual reason to humiliate themselves before God and to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to mortify the flesh more and more by the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of piety, and to press forward to the goal of perfection until at length, delivered from this body of death, they shall reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. By reason of these remains of indwelling sin and also because of the temptations of the world and of Satan, those who are converted could not persevere in that grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful, who, having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them therein, even to the end. So far is the serpent from prevailing against the church, people of God, that not one of those whom the Lord gave to his Son has ever perished. He has kept them all. They have not prevailed. Now this is expressed also in verse 4 with the words, He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. There are are two ways that commentators have looked at that. On, On the one hand, there are those commentators who want to make that a kind of extension of verse 3. The plowers plowing on the back and they imagine here then the ox that pulls the plow and the ox tied with cords or leather straps to the plow to make the plow be uh, moved through the ground. And the metaphor then is the Lord cutting the ox free from that plow so the ox escapes from the hand of the master. It's still, if that's the case, it's still a variation really, isn't it, on verse 3, because verse 3 depicts Israel as the field that's being plowed, and this then would uh, mean that Israel is now the ox that the wicked are using to do the plowing. I don't um, particularly care for that uh, interpretation of the metaphor here, I think this is probably a new metaphor, a different metaphor altogether, though it doesn't matter greatly. And the idea is here, I think, that the enemies have come and have taken the people of God captive and have bound them and are carrying them away out of their land. This happened frequently in the um, history of Israel. They were bound in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar bound many of them and carried them away to the Uh, city of Babylon, 
The Assyrian king carried many of the ten tribes away from their land, captives. And I think that that's the idea. What the psalmist is talking about here is simply the fact that many of God's people have been in bondage and oppression under their enemies. It's to be taken somewhat metaphorically here, too, as well as literally. They've been under bondage to their enemies, but always God has cut the cords with which the wicked have bound them. He has freed them from the affliction and oppression of their enemies. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Now, there's one other thing in that verse that's very important. In fact, this might be the most important statement in the whole psalm. The Lord is righteous. Why has the Lord done this? Why has he cut the cords of the wicked? Because he is righteous. Now the psalm could have appealed to the loving kindness of the Lord. There, it could have appealed to the faithfulness of the Lord. Many other psalms do in these kinds of settings. When their enemy is attacking and the people are oppressed, they turn to the Lord and call upon him for his loving kindness and for the revelation of his faithfulness. But this psalm is particularly striking in that it appeals to the righteousness of the Lord. It says it is because he is righteous that he has cut the cords of the wicked. Think about that. It's because he is righteous He has cut the cords of the wicked for us too. What does that mean? When we need deliverance from our enemies, we can appeal to his loving kindness, we can appeal to his faithfulness, we can also appeal to his righteousness. That is, we can say to him, it is only justice, only righteousness, that you should deliver us from these afflictions? Well, first of all, of course, he's righteous to keep his promises. He doesn't change with regard to those promises. He doesn't back away from those promises because he suddenly finds it unpleasant to keep them or because he's angry with his people. He's righteous in the performance of his promises. But also, there is in that word righteous the appeal of the people of God to the blood of atonement. What is it, after all, that distinguishes them from their enemies? Especially when we consider that period of the judges when they were so wicked and so apostate and so rebellious against their God and turned again and again and again away from him. How could they say, We're different. We're different from those nations around us. They weren't. They were worse than the nations around them. But they appealed to the righteousness of the Lord as revealed in the blood of atonement. That's what made them different. That they were covered by the blood of atonement. That their sins were covered by the blood of atonement. 
And that's what we do today too, isn't it? We do not say to the Lord, deliver us because of our righteousness. Save us from the affliction of our enemies because we're such good people. We say to him, save us because you are righteous. And we have seen and known your righteousness in the blood shed for us. That's his righteousness. By that righteousness, he has committed himself to our deliverance. Let's look finally then at the prayer against the enemies. Now I think we may say first of all about this prayer that exactly because this prayer is here in the psalm, the people of God are experiencing present trouble, present persecution at the hands of their enemies. And it's in this present trouble that they're now being exhorted to look at their past history and to derive from that past history encouragement for the present. Let Israel now say, the psalmist says, let her say right now in her afflictions, they have not prevailed against me. But notice in the second place about that prayer that it is a prayer for vengeance. That's, it's a special character. Let them be put to shame. Let them be as grass on the housetops. Let no one who passes by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. I think we see four petitions there. Basically, first of all, there is the petition that the enemies be ashamed. That means let them be humiliated and publicly disgraced. If they have, as they have humiliated and publicly disgraced us, let them also be humiliated and publicly disgraced. The second petition is let them be turned back. They have come into our land. They are persecuting us. Drive them out. Get rid of them. Let them no more come near us to do to us any kind of harm or to exercise their hatred against us. The third petition is found then in verses 6 and 7, and it's another metaphor, and yet a, another metaphor that has to do with farming. Let them be as the grass on the housetops with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds the sheaves his arms. You have to, I think, imagine a little bit the picture of, that this is drawing. You see the people of Israel out in their fields reaping the, the grasses of the field, perhaps haying and gathering in the hay as food and bedding for their animals. And as they're reaping their fields, they might go out to certain corners and pockets of land nearby that weren't deliberately planted, but from which they might be able also to reap a little bit of grass that is useful to them. When they've finished all that, they look around and say, is there anything else that needs to be done? And they see growing on the tops of their houses a little bit of grass. Flat-roofed houses, of course, uh, whether they were planted with grass as 
some commentators suggest, or whether it was just grass that grew there accidentally, as some soil was blown up there by the wind, I don't know, and I don't think it matters, but they would see this grass growing on the housetops, and they would think, should I go and get that? And the answer would be no. It's not worth it. It's been burned and withered up by the sun. There's no sense in sending the reapers up there. Might just as well leave it. Let it perish. And the prayer here is, let the wicked be like that. That grass that's worthless to the reaper. He doesn't use his scythe, he doesn't gather it into his hand. The ones who are bundling it up to form sheaves and to tie the sheaves and carry them up to the barns aren't worried about it, they leave it there. Nobody is concerned with it, just let it lie. It's not worth our time. Now you see, of course, a a metaphor somewhat similar to this in the parable of the tares, and I think it's in Revelation 14 as well. When God talks about the judgment day and the reaping of the harvest of men in the judgment day, but in the parable of the tares, you have that story of the farmer who sows wheat in his field and his enemy comes and he sows tares in the field along with the wheat. And the servants come to the master and they say, There's, there are tares growing in your wheat. Shall we go and pluck them up? And the master says, no, leave them there. But when the time of harvest comes, then cut everything. Cut the wheat and the tares. Gather the wheat into my barns and throw the tares into the fire. So you have a picture there of the harvest of the whole world, the harvest of the righteous and the wicked. This is similar, but you see it's a, it's a little different too, isn't it? Because here the picture is just let them wither under the fierce sun of the wrath of God. Let them perish as the grass on the housetops perishes before it grows up. Leave them behind when you come to reap the great harvest of your elect. And the final prayer is, neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. There are again some commentators who want to relate this to the harvest. And they refer in this connection to Ruth chapter 2 verse 4. As Boaz was going out to supervise the work of his reapers in his fields, he greeted them with the words, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. And so they say, this is the passers-by. As the reapers are working in the field, the passers-by, pronouncing their usual blessing upon those who are reaping, because they know that this is a work that's beneficial to the whole nation. And the prayer is then, don't let them pray. Don't let them say that blessing to these reapers. Again, I don't think there's really any need to do that. I think this may well be just a picture of of the people of God as they're walking down the streets of their towns or as they're walking on the highways of their land, passing by these men who have afflicted them from their youth up. 
And the usual uh, greeting would be in Israel, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And the psalmist says, now, don't let these men hear that blessing. Don't let anyone say, we bless you in the name of the Lord. In other words, let the blessing of the Lord be withheld from them. And let no one among the people of God wish them well. Let their lives be futile, unfruitful, and unblessed. And let them finally perish. Now, of course, that raises again, as so often in the Psalms, the question of Jesus' command to us to love our enemies. Pray for them, he says. Bless those who persecute you. And here the psalmist says, let no one say, or Israel says, let no one say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. How do we resolve that question? That's a much vexed question and and probably impossible for us to give an entirely satisfactory answer to. But first of all, of course, Jesus is talking about personal enemies in Matthew 5. He says to us, don't curse your personal enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. Bless them. And here it is Zion, praying against the enemies of Zion. Not just personal enemies, but enemies of Zion. Enemies of God, therefore, and enemies of all the people of God. It's much more than a selfish concern for vengeance on their own behalf. It's a concern for vengeance for Zion, for God's people. Let those who hate Zion be ashamed and turned back. But even then, of course, there can be this qualification to our prayers. Let all those who refuse to repent of their sin, of returning, uh, of uh, afflicting Zion and hating Zion, be ashamed and turned back. But let those who are elect among them, like the Apostle Paul, be blessed and rejoice according to your eternal purpose. We leave this vengeance even then in the hands of God, not taking it ourselves, but leaving it in the hands of God. So we see here then in this psalm, people of God, the fundamental idea of the triumph of the righteousness of the righteous over the wicked and the triumph of the righteous over the wicked through the righteousness of God. Not through our righteousness, or because of our righteousness, but through the righteousness of God. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 to 10. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 
always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Calvin says, the church labors under the cross, bearing the afflictions of Christ. Exactly because she bears the afflictions of Christ, she shall also with him be delivered from them. He has founded the church on the rock of his own righteousness, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? May God bless us with his word.